Okay. So we'll, we'll be, use the rest of the evening to do two things. I, I'm going to tell you a story, a, a very personal story, uh, illustrating a turning point in my life. And Sue will pick up after that and lead you into uh, some of the things we hope to achieve with the Pure Land Project. <laughs> okay, so uh, let me see, 20, yes, 20 years ago, and I can see it as if it was yesterday. Um, there was a knock at our front door. My wife and I were living in, in the family house and we were just by ourselves that evening. And I went to the door and got the fright of my life because there were two policemen there. Not one, but two. <laughs> um, and by this, this stage, Valerie had come to the door as well. And they said, sorry to interrupt, but we're here to tell you that your son is in intensive care in Royal Perth. And he's very ill and maybe you'd like to go and visit. And that was it. I don't know whether police still do those sorts of things, but um, they did it very nicely. And uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't uh, soften the blow for us. We, we knew that our son, who was um, 23 at the time, had been on a paragliding course with an instructor. And of course, that was our immediate thought that something had happened. Anyway, um, I've nev never been in intensive care before, uh, in the ward, I mean. And some of you may have, some of you may even have had the benefit of being looked after. <laughs> but that was another total experience for us because when we went in, um, there was Roy completely covered in gear. <laughs> He had tubes sticking out of him from all directions, um, monitors, probes, you name it. Uh, his face was all bandaged up and he could hardly see a person. <clears throat> so they said that uh, he was completely paralysed. He had brain injuries. He had broken his back. And he was in a delicate situation. So uh, we went, we stayed there for a little while and then we, we went outside into the waiting room and I've never felt so drained, I suppose, alone, at, at, a, at a loss, at a total loss. And I, have, um, I should say that um, at the time, I was, I suppose you'd say agnostic. We'd, uh, we'd given up our Church of England uh, attendance and religion about 20, 30 years ago and hadn't 
done anything since. So I had nothing to fall back on in the way of spiritual support. <clears throat> so then it became a question, well, what on earth do we do next? And how long do we stay here? Um, what are we going to do? I th the, the rest of that evening is a bit of a blur, but we did go home because there was not, nothing we could do. Anyway, he was in intensive care for uh, a couple of weeks, actually. I can't remember whether it was two or three weeks. Quite a long time. And gradually they took bits and pieces off him monitors and tubes and things and he became conscious uh, he couldn't talk well he, he, he could make noises but they weren't intelligible <clears throat> and he couldn't move anyway he uh, he did he did get his uh, consciousness back enough that they moved him out of intensive care. And then he was in Royal Perth for some time, a couple of months, and gradually, gradually, he improved against the odds. He still was not able to speak intelligibly and some of the, the words that he strung together were very funny. <laughs> we actually had a few laughs as he learned to speak again. Um, and his back, his broken back healed in part, not, not all, all of it while he was in hospital. But he got to a stage where he could sit up and he was in a wheelchair. Um, and at that stage, they decided that he should go out to Shenton Park into the rehabilitation wing. <clears throat> he was a very determined young man and he had everything going for him. He'd been through a gruelling set of um, almost exams to, and he'd got a, ended up with a, a good job at Hammersley Iron. He just bought his first, well, bought a, an old unit in the city uh, and he had a little car. And he was very well liked. So anyway, he had all these things going for him and we started to um, ponder on the, uh, the unfairness of it all. And you start thinking, oh, why didn't it happen to me? How, how come it's happened to Roy, my, our own children? <clears throat> anyway, he was, he was out at uh, Shenton Park there and he graduated from the wheelchair and next time, Next thing we know, he was on crutches. And then he was able to walk. And after about um, five or six months, um, he still couldn't talk properly, or hardly talk at all. Um, they said, we think if, if you'll participate in his recovery, then, then he can go home with you. Um, and you, you can, you'll have to do this and you'll have to do that and, you know, catheters and... Uh, I, I guess the, the funniest thing, and uh, in a way, uh, was learning, uh, teaching him to speak again. Because literally they gave us a um, first-year primary school reader. And we were actually getting him to look at these 
pictures and, and read out the cat sat on the, on the mat, you know, things like that. And it was hard to believe that he would ever converse again the way he used to. But anyway, that's what happened over a period of time. He, he never got his memory um, completely back. <clears throat> but he was a very determined young man. And he, he was determined he was going to get better. And so he did. And next thing we know, he's going back to work. He couldn't do the things that he was doing before. He just wasn't capable. So they gave him a much simpler job. <coughs> and he was just going one day a week sort of thing and trying out. Um, this was at Hammersley. And next thing we know, he comes home and says, the rottenest, the, the um, Perth the rottenest swims on and Hammersley's putting in a team and I'm going to swim. He, he was a very good swimmer. He nearly made the, the state team. And we said, hang on, Roy. No, you're not. <laughs> uh, and his neurosurgeon said, young man, you've got a brain injury, you're not completely healed yet, don't do it. So he went ahead and did it. Um, and he was in a team and they had to swim 20 minutes and then the next person would take over. So anyway, he did that and the doctors were not impressed. And so this went on uh, as he slowly improved and his speech improved. Um, and then, uh, what came next? Um, yeah, he, he was doing all right, but he decided that he wouldn't be able to go back and do what he was doing before. And so he was casting around and trying to work out what he could do. And then um, he, he was going out with his friends a bit again, uh, which was good. And then one morning, um, he, like he was been living with us all this time and um, had his own, own room. One morning, um, we were having breakfast and we thought, Roy oh, hasn't come out. He must be sleeping in. So I didn't hurry, but then I went down and knocked on the door and went in. And he was dead. He, um, <clears throat> he'd slumped out of the, the bed and his head was on the floor and there was some blood coming out his mouth. And so in a panic, I tried to resuscitate him, but it was he was he was gone, and so we called the ambulance, and uh, yeah, after a while they took the body away. So uh, we were devastated. I often describe it as feeling like I had a black hole in my heart that would never heal. Um, so something was missing, like life had suddenly lost its meaning and it began a great search <clears throat> in, in my mind and in, in my wife's mind too. And we knew for, from asking around that um, these situations that the, the um, husband and wife often start blaming each other and it can lead to separation and divorce, N not uncommon. So anyway, we avoided all that, um, except my wife did keep blaming, oh, we should have 
gone in and checked earlier and if we'd seen him that night before we went to bed, maybe, you know, you, you come up with all these reasons for not doing something that would have saved him. <clears throat> anyway, um, after a while, one thing that sticks in my mind is I decided I'd better go back to work. <laughs> I sat down at my desk and I just could not concentrate. It was hopeless. So I gave that up for a while. And then one day my wife came home and she said, oh, I saw this book and uh, I, I thought it might help. And she started reading it and she said, oh, I can't hack this. Do you want to, ha do you want to have a look at it? I had a look at it and I started reading it and it was like a light switched on. I read it right through and then I read it through again. It was uh, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, not the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The, uh, this is a, an account of how the, the things you have to do to progress along the path to, to liberation, enlightenment. And suddenly, for me, it was like a light was switched on and I could see some reasons for things. A few things fell into place. And uh, that began a journey for me where I finally after doing some things. Um, in those days, I was getting little cassettes sent in the mail and listening to them from a teacher. And, uh, and then I started reading books and lots of what I read said, you must find yourself a teacher that you can connect with and learn from him. So I started going to different Dharma centres around Perth um, and finally happened upon High Griever when we had a new Australian monk starting as our resident teacher, Venerable Dondrup. And I happened to connect with him and then over the next few years um, slowly learnt more and more about the Buddha's teachings. <coughs> And here I am. So it, it's, uh, it was, it's become a, a really weird for me to look back and think, Roy, if you hadn't died, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a Buddhist. Like, I, would I probably would have never met the teachings. Um, so in, in, in his death, he, for me personally, he actually did something quite amazing. Um, and of course, as you guessed, that, that's been the turning point in my life. And at the time, um, before I had these sort of revelations, uh, it was the deepest crisis. It was everything was black. Everything, nothing made sense. Your children shouldn't die before you, and yet we started talking to friends, and we found out how many people had lost children. Um, then we then we found out that not only had people lost twenty-year-olds, but several times it was suicide, which of course is even worse. So all this is going on and we'd, we'd never, never thought about it or knew about it. So there were a lot, a lot of learnings for, for on, our, on our part as we went through this whole process. Um, and, and like it's often said that out of a crisis something good will come and um, this is one example anyway when certainly that, that has happened for me. 
in a strange way. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wish it on your own son, but that's what happened, and uh, he certainly helped me. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Do you think I should take questions now? Yeah, just ask if anyone's got a question. Yeah, we might. Sue's going to talk about something quite different. So if you've got any questions, maybe now's the best time. Figured out how to turn it on. This way first, was it? Who was it with the question? You with the question. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, it, it just, um, I was sitting there wondering just how many other people here get drawn into Buddhism and meditation, that true things in your, that happens in your life, and I certainly wouldn't be sitting here, here without a disaster in my life, you know. I, I got to about 20 with the Church of England and confirmed all that and then I never ever seen the place again until I was about oh, 70, I suppose, 68 or something. And um, I was looking after my wife at the time and I thought I was as good as gold, but you had friends around saying, you know, Firthy, no, you're not. And so I ended up down here and uh, without that, and my wife's died in that sense, but without things like, I would never have come to this place and found how wonderful it is and wonderful people and the, and the teachings and the meditation. And I never thought I'd ever be go to retreats for nine days and not talk to anybody, for God's sake, who did that? That's ridiculous, you know. But no, thank you so much for that, but I'm sure there's a lot of other people that have, have been drawn into these sort of spiritual ways just through some disaster or other in their life. Yeah, Thank it you. seems like we need that, that size of disaster to wake us up. <laughs> um, so my question would be about those big things that happen, like, say, crises, and I was just going to ask... When you're in your low moments, what did you do to remind yourself that there was something better out the other side of that thing? Because just like, say, just in general with things in the world. Well, I, I, I think um, the trouble was that I didn't, didn't do anything. And I didn't think there was a way out. And I didn't think there was a a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think when, when you get depressed and so on, people have similar experiences, I think. They can't actually think that far ahead and think that positively. Yeah. And do you think, like, say, taking action, just like, say, getting community and just doing stuff gets you to move forward, you think? Uh, I moved forward when I started reading this book and I saw that there were completely different ways of, of knowing our life and, and, and what life means. Um, uh, you know, fr from the very beginning, I suppose I, I, I didn't, I had an open, I don't know whether I had an open mind or probably never even thought about it, whether there was a life after death. So once you accept that, and there are many attested cases that, that you can show almost scientifically that that's the case, um, and then you start reading about karma, and that made sense to me because I had a scientific background, you know, cause and effect, and then once you add that into um, new um, life after death, 
then you can see the, the life continuing and if, if the karma leaves imprints, which seems quite logical, then you'll experience it in life after life. So all those things gave me a completely different outlook on life. And that's what brought me through. And this will be my final question. And when you're reading the book, what particular idea stood out to you about shifting perspective? About like turning tragedy into something that was positive? Uh, it's, it's mentioned in the book, but only in passing. Um, it's just one of those things that I've heard before in general conversation. It's not restricted to Buddhism. It's a general thing, isn't it, that out of, out of adversity, mm. you can often find um, some mm -hmm. positive thing that's really going to help you in life. And of course, at the time, if you're really in, in adversity and, and in terrible circumstances, you don't, well, you don't think that. It needs something to bring you out. And in my case, it was exposure to these ideas that I thought were quite revolutionary, but made sense. Thank you very much. Thank you for your question. <coughs> Hello, everyone. They're quite wonderful questions. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, so, Len and I represent an organization called the Pure Land of the Indestructible Buddha Incorporated. For everyday purposes, pure land. Its main objective is to form a care home for people at the end of their lives who want to spend their last days in a spiritual environment. In establishing the center, we'd welcome Buddhists and non-Buddhists. Clients will be able to bring their own spiritual guide or teacher if they wished, but we'll have volunteers working there who we hope will, when required by the patient, we can share teachings of the Buddha that they might want to talk about. I suppose death and what lies afterwards, but also understanding what's happening to them. This series that we're here tonight has got a theme called Turning Points. I had one of those when I met Ajahn Brahm in um, 1994 and became a Buddhist. And I feel that, that changed my life forever. From this vantage point, it seems like forever. But I... I came across another turning point when I came here on a Friday night and some people, this is some years later, some people were talking about the Pure Land Project, although it hadn't been named that at that time. And that really interested me. I, I decided to get involved in it. And that really did give me two great new directions. One was that I had um, a project for after work when I retired, but also it was different because my Buddhism had all been for me how I felt about life and death and how I would live my life and everything. But when I came across this project, I realized that it wasn't just for me, it would be for others. It would be how we shared the teachings with people who would really need it. So now working for the project, it matters how I see things, how I... We all are actually very involved in how we might share the teachings with people when they're, when they're our patients. So with that in mind, I've been giving some thought to what particular aspects of Buddhism would be useful for a patient who was dying. What matters to people? And in that, we were really helped by a book by someone called Christine Longacre called Facing Death and Finding Hope. She'd interviewed um, people who were dying and found out what mattered to them, what sort of things upset them, what sort of things made them happy, what they really needed, how they felt about everything. And we spent a fair bit of time studying that. Some useful themes emerge. Um, one important thing is that it really matters when a person's dying that they enter a very peaceful state, a virtuous state, because that 
will inform their rebirth. It makes a difference what kind of rebirth you have if you're in a good state before you die. And of course, when people are dying, they're often not in a good state. It's often quite far from, from the case. Things like grief and worry and pain and resentment are very common in people who are dying because they very often have a lot wrong with them. So we hope to alleviate those sort of feelings if we can. It's not, it's not an easy job and we're giving a lot of thought to our education program. A lot of people are worried about what lies ahead, of course. Buddhism teaches us that um, virtuous living creates good karma. So looking at it logically, this would mean that a person who's lived a good life should have nothing to fear about what comes next. However, people often think they haven't done enough good in the world. And they will express that. I've often heard my own friends say that, actually. People who are perfectly no normal people, you'd think they would know they'd done some good things. We think that people might need to be reminded about their past good deeds and give themselves credit because it's surprisingly common that people don't think they've done very much good. One of the people in the book was quoted as saying, I want to think my life amounts to something. And you get the feeling they thought it didn't. So I think a lot of our work will be encouraging people to see the positive side of, th side of things. You, you might think that carers like us who don't know the patient would be hard pressed to know what to say, but I think it'll mean some really good conversations about what makes a good life and what counts as doing good. I think we want to help people to uncover their unsung virtues and take refuge in them. Actually, seeing the good in our lives is very difficult for people who are carrying grief and suffering and depression. They very often look back on their lives and they can see nothing but sadness and bad things. And they, they really multiply that in their mind and they don't do that for the good things. So that is something that we will have to look at. We don't want people to, to ignore the good parts of their lives. And in fact, it's quite handy to look at a beautiful event and just see it as one beautiful event in your life, not attach it to what came before or afterwards. I mean, even to take an obvious example, your wedding, how you can see a beautiful day and divest it from the fact that you got divorced later. You can actually do that. You can. You can look at the wonderful, beautiful day that you did such and such a thing. It doesn't have to be connected to anything else. And it's quite therapeutic. I've done it myself. It doesn't matter that the beautiful day I went to Niagara Falls and had a lovely day with my husband. It doesn't matter that we got divorced later. That's still a beautiful day in my mind. That's what we should think about. People worry about what's left behind. That was another thing they talked about in the book, actually. How to fix things, because they're losing their capabilities of doing things physically. They can't, and people often leave things to the last minute, and then they can't do things because they're not fit. And then, you know, they lose the ability, they lose their physical, their, their social contacts. People who are dying actually find people dropping off. It's just family and, you know, it gets smaller and smaller circle. Very difficult to get things done, so we, we envisage being able to help people get things done, pointing them in the direction of lawyers and, you know, various sort of people in the community who can help them make a will, for instance, or all those things that need to be, need to be done. Quite a lot of things come to mind, but we need, you, can, you can get the picture. Sometimes the problems run deeper. There might be true resentment about things that people have done to them. They may be still suffering things that are, are grievances about what's gone before, and there may be guilt about hurts that they've in, imposed on people who may have died or moved away, so it's a bit late to do anything about it. So there is making amends, making, because these things are heavy burdens. Apologizing to those that we've hurt or wronged by letter or by email or, or in person 
or forgiving people who've hurt or wronged us and telling them. It's never too late to do this. Even if they've died, mentally you can actually do that as well, to forgive people and to apologize to people. I don't think there's any constraint that can stop that message, a mental message like that, going out. And nothing can stop the positivity that comes back if you do it. And it's also a positive way to deal with pain because pain is often the cause of the heavy burdens people are carrying mentally. And it's a big impediment to peace, how to reduce pain. These days now that um, assisted suicide has been um, legitimized in law, there may be a temptation for people to think that that would be a good thing to do to, if they view their pain as unbearable. The Buddhist view is that this will not end their pain. It'll be there after death. If it has to be dealt with, it has to be dealt with. I find that awfully difficult to say to a person who is dying. I find that very heavy. I don't think I'd say that, but I'd say it's not the best way of dealing with the problem. There are better ways to deal with it. So what are the better ways? I was thinking. So really, reconciliation and forgiveness and making amends is very important. And it's important to realize it needs to be done before death. There is a kind of, I mean, I've heard people talking about this. It's sort of they think they can die, and then they can kind of put a good spin on what they did um, and actually kind of put their best face forward to whatever's facing them. But if you've heard of the pure land, I think you realize, if you think about it, pure, what happens after death in that place is pure. No lies. No lies. None. It'll be truth. And if you say that offhand, you think, oh, good, that sounds like a nice place. Only not if you wanted to put a positive skin on those, spin, I should say, on those bad things you did. So the time to be putting a positive spin on anything is before you die, it, because afterwards it really is too late. I think... One of our big problems with people is they're in a weakened state when they're sick. And we would have to avoid kind of trying to convert people or make people do things that they might not want to do. It's a question of finding out how we can help them. But it needs to be in a positive that way that will work. And hugging your resentments to your bosom is not the way to do it. There are some positive things you can actually do, and one of those things I was thinking about, the sharing of merit. Now, that was a, a weird concept that I came across as a Buddhist, but in my Christian upbringing, you would think that when you've done something good, it's your merit. You, you did that, it's your good thing. It's nobody else's good thing. But actually, in Buddhism, you can share your merit for doing good things. I found that puzzling. But a few years ago, um, a great monk from Thailand came here, Ajahn Plian, and he was great to talk to. And I asked him about the sharing of merit, because I'd just heard about it, and I said, I don't see how it works. So he told me, he said, when you do good things, the devas really rejoice. It makes them very happy. I'm talking about angels, if you don't know what a deva is. Yes. It makes them really happy, and they, if you want to give your merit, they will take it for you. That's the mechanics of it. That's how it happens. So I thought, that sounds good. I'm going to do that. And I have done it. I'm not going to bore you with the ins and outs of, of what happened, but I do see my merit as a golden ball in front of me, and I can walk around waiting for something that needs it, and I'll just send it with my heart. Now, I did this one time in Thailand, and it really did work. And as I say, I'm not going to give you details. You don't need proof. All you need is for you to do it, and then you'll find out. You don't need me at all. You do this. It really works. You just think of your merit for doing good things, and you think of it, and you send it to the person who needs it. Once I found out this, and I'd actually done it, and it really, I saw it work, I was really full of enthusiasm. So the next time I saw Adam, this is in Thailand now, I was at Ajahn Plian's monastery, and I couldn't wait to ask him. I was saying, how do you make do it so that it will work? 
<laughs> and he said, you can't control everything. <laughs> Very intuitive monk. <laughs> but he said, if you really want to be sure it's going to work, well, then you can share your merit with the Sangha, the monks and nuns, because you'll know that they can receive it, but some people can't receive it. So you can own the act of, of sharing your merit, but you don't own the result. And the controllers among us will feel the pain, <laughs> as I did when I thought, oh, really? No. But you see, the, the universe isn't like that. You can't just make someone get saved, but you can help. And that's really the spiritual message in any great religion. They don't make you do anything, but they point the way. And that's what this is like, really. Actually, I've heard people say all kinds of things. My friends talking about this, they'll say, but I haven't done anything good, which takes us back to before, not thinking. And I look at these people and I say, yes, you have. And they think they haven't. They think they've not done anything good enough. Everyone's done something good enough. Even the worst people have done something good enough to share. And a friend said to me, if I give my merit to somebody else, there won't be any left. <laughs> well, I've never bothered with sharing. I just give it. And believe me, I'm still walking about with all four limbs and nothing happens. So I can recommend nothing happens if you just give it. But also, um, it's meritorious. You'll get merit for doing this. So that's really like the law of supply that does govern the universe. The more you give, the more you get. If you're looking for cash, you might be disappointed, but you do get, you know, rewards. You do. Yes. I've lost my place. I'm just thinking what else. Yes, that's right. So you can do that, or as you can see, a nice person, even a nice person, will think of impediments to sharing their merit, apart from thinking that they haven't got any merit. So you can actually send meta. Loving kindness. You can, a Christian would say, bless people. You know, you can do that. Then you don't have to go into complicated things about how it works. You just bless them. But that's hard if you really hate somebody. And actually, I got a very good, we're only human. I got a really good insight from a lady at the Theosophical Society years ago. We, I think we must have been talking about this sort of thing. And she said, um, if she wanted to, you know, to, to think good thoughts about somebody, but she really couldn't, she'd say to herself, God loves you. And that is actually, it's like the thin end of the wedge. Once you start, it can widen up. And actually, if you're a Buddhist and you don't believe in God, I think you could say things like, your family loves you, your friends love you, something like that, even if you can't say, I love you. Because it is the thin end of the wedge. Once you get started, it will widen. And you'll find, find generosity kind of sneaking in. So I think those are the sort of things. We were talking last night, because we had one of our teaching sessions, about what to do when a person plainly needs help and is exhibiting resentment towards other people. And what would you do to try and get them to be receptive? Because you don't want to kind of start hammering them at a time like that. It's got to be kind of good. And I thought, what about... Um, sharing my merit with them. If they're in a bad state and thinking mean thoughts about somebody, because they'll tell you, sick people do tell you, I've worked in enough settings, people come out with all kinds of stuff. I thought if you share merit with them, then they'll be in a better state of mind and they might be able to start softening up towards the person they've got to apologize to or they've got to forgive. So we could quite sneakily be sending blessings and sharing merit to these people and they don't have to know. It's like absent healing, you know, you can do it without them knowing and it does work. I know it works. And Len has a fantastic story about a lady who wanted to share her pain. She hadn't got anything to dedicate. She dedicated her pain to someone in the community she wanted to help and it did get rid of her, her pain. So if there's time afterwards, you can tell that story. So that's just a few ideas I formulated on how we can help them. There's a whole lot more, but there isn't time. But we do have these teaching sessions where they, they discuss, we discuss that kind of thing. So you, you, some of you might be interested. Um, just to tell you about the Pure Land um, and how it's going to be working, 
Um, we do have a model of care. That's a document of about six and a half thousand words. It tells how the service will be delivered in broad terms and in detail. It outlines the best practice that we can do for patients covering their admission and their period of um, while they're with us and the discharge or death. And it's a guide for the centre organisers and the staff about the standards of care that we're going to deliver. So the objectives, I'll just read you to the objectives and you'll see what we're up against in actually um, in doing this because we are going to be running a pilot project first for about three years. Um, this pilot project is going to be trying to find out the availability of suitable volunteer staff, whether they're out there or whether they're available, to establish the community acceptance of the service, whether people be interested or not, determine the number of clients who wish to use the service, to gauge their satisfaction with the service, to gauge staff and volunteer satisfaction with the service and their working conditions and their perceived approval of the service, and to assess the budgetary predictions against the performance. We've got um, a budget, but we have no really way, real way of knowing whether that will be enough um, for what we actually want to do. And to assess the building and the facilities and the resources against the actual need, and to identify gaps in service. So what we have, and, and what we find out from, from that, we'll be able to refine our model of care and improve. We'll, we'll know more what we need, basically. We've got a developer who's interested at the moment in developing a property that he owns in Bentley, um, and he'd rebuild it so that it would be um, a better layout for what we want and um, have ac disability access so it would be easier for us to use it and actually would be approved by a local council as well, of course. But COVID came along and wrecked the, um, the building industry, and he's afraid to do it now for the time being because he could get stuck with a project that's just sitting there for years and not move. So we understand that he doesn't want to do it right now. So we're occupying our time with educating the people who might want to work with us so that they will be better able to do that. So we invite interested people. We've got a, a group of friends who have given us their contact details, and we keep them in touch with what's happening. And some of you might be interested in coming along to our education sessions. All are welcome. We have got time. Do you want to just quickly tell that story? It's really amazing about the lady and the pain. And oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, OK. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> this is a story about a, uh, this has really happened, uh, a wealthy uh, lady who was in palliative care and every day she complained to the nurses, every day she complained. There was no nothing was right and on top of it all uh, she had this terrible pain and every time a nurse had come in, she'd say, you still haven't done anything about my pain. And they would say, yes, we have. It's okay, dear. Um, we've checked with the doctors. They've done everything they can. Um, and still she would complain. And they would say, but you've got a dose of morphine now, and that should be enough for you uh, with your current condition. And she would say, no, I've still got the pain. You, you're not doing it right. Anyway, the chaplain, <clears throat> I, I'm, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure what denomination he was, but the chaplain is telling the story. And he said, every week I'd go in and she'd be complaining and she'd be saying she's in pain. And the doctors would say, she can't be in pain. We've, we've done this and we've done that. She's getting enough morphine. Um, and he'd go in again and he'd say, and this particular week he, he, he was thinking, oh, I don't know whether I can stand this anymore. I know I'm going to get dressed down and told off. And uh, so he went in and sure enough, she's complaining about this, that and the other. And he finally lost his cool and he said, um, he said, look, you're focusing on yourself all the time. All you think about is yourself. I've just come from visiting a young woman 
Uh, she's got four children under the age of eight. Her husband has just died in a work accident. She is absolutely beside herself. She doesn't know how she's going to look after the children or make enough money to keep herself. And, uh, and then he said, why don't you dedicate your pain to that young woman? Why don't you say to yourself, let me endure this pain uh, instead of that woman. May she have peace and happiness. And then he walked away thinking, well, I've blown it now. <clears throat> he said, I went back the next week and he said, I don't use these words lightly, but she was transformed. She had decided she would do this. And the first thing she said to him was, now, chaplain, um, what has happened to that young woman? Is she being cared for? Is, is somebody really looking after her? What's, ha what's happened to her in the last week? And uh, yeah, he said she's been transformed. And what's more, she stopped complaining about her pain. The pain had sort of magically gone away. So um, Sue was talking about how, you know, pain is quite complex sometimes and can arise from mental activity just as easily as from physical problems. Story? So it goes to, it goes to show there's a lot you can do. So for us, it's definitely a, um, a learning curve, but we hope to be able to provide something that's a bit different from what you usually get in an end-of-life um, facility. Mm. Thank you for listening. Does anyone have a look at the... Oh, we've got 15 minutes. That's time for some questions. So would anyone like to offer a question or a comment? Quite rich material tonight. I'll just send that out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you say I do that too. <laughs> when it comes to the older people that you meet and are dying, and when, it, when you look at their lives and just talking to younger people, what would you say to, what attitude would you have for life when you're going out and living? Because, you know, there's a lot of stresses that happen at the end of the day. But at the end of it, when the end is near, what actually is important to remember? When the end's near, what's really important is people should be left very quiet. We've got that from really the Tibetan Book of the Dead and different interpretations from various people like the Dalai Lama and... Um, Richard Gere does a good reading um, from the Book of the Dead on YouTube. Um, I got hold of that by just looking up the Bardo, B-A-R-D-O, um, and he, where, where it addresses approaching death and the stages. And it's very obvious from all we've heard that you really have to have a very peaceful, quiet time as, as the end is coming. That can be difficult as, if people have got masses of relatives because um, a lot of people make a lot of noise, especially when people are dying. All, there's a lot of weeping and wailing sometimes, and that's really negative. They, they should be, it should be as quiet as possible. One of the things we did talk about last night, actually, was that um, we might factor in a day off for patients, that there's a day when nobody comes in. Now, that would have to be very um, on a case-by-case basis because sometimes people are very dependent on their, their, their spouse or their carer, whoever it is, so it might not work for everybody. But where possible, to try and keep things quiet, especially if they are dying, to keep it quiet. Because it's distracting and they are, you know, they're actually experiencing things on inner levels which they, they need to focus on. Especially if, you, if you've done a lot of reading and you understand what's going to happen, 
you'd be wanting to go into it positively and with a clear mind mm -hmm. and, and really do what they advise you to do. You wouldn't want people distracting you. So really, if that's a message people can get out, making a noise when people are dying is really bad. Any kind of noise. Quiet, quiet, that's really... Yeah. Mm. Uh, and this would be my final question. <laughs> then how do you think you can quiet down your life just when things are going at you all the time? Like, not just with meditation, but like just an attitude of like, how do you quiet down when all the noise is coming in? I think prioritizing, I've had to do that a lot. I've been very busy all my life. You've got to have time for yourself. And actually I can remember Ajahn Brahm being asked something about um, getting time to meditate. And he said, have you got time to eat? <laughs> yes, you bet we have. Have you got time to cook a nice meal? or go out and get something. Yes, of course you have. So you can make time for anything. It really is a bit of discipline in your life. Make, make space for yourself. I mean, there are things that only you can do. There might be things you can delegate to somebody else, and that doesn't mean leaning over their shoulder and making them do it your way. It means actually giving that task to them that they do it. And there's not taking on too much. And it's somebody up there is laughing at me for saying that because I, I've taken on too much all my life. But there's a tendency, there are people like that. They're always taking on too much. You have to sort of put the skids on sometimes and just think, I haven't got time for any more things. Yes. So it, I think a bit of discipline in life. What did you say, Len? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, I agree with everything. Um, I'm just chuckling because, uh, yeah, next year I'm 80, and um, I'm, I'm finding that things that I used to do and, and just fly through and, mm. and do so easily and not have any repercussions, I can't anymore. Mm. And it's, it's brought home to me that this has probably been happening all my life, that while I was younger, I could dismiss it and cope with it. But slowly, 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 it catches up with you. Mm. And you suddenly find that um, coming here tonight, for example, uh, or we, we had a very nice discussion night last night, um, every one of those activities takes more out of me now than it used to. Mm. And I, it, it's brought home to me that you really can do too much. Mm. And as soon, as soon as you take on too much, the stress goes through the roof and you get into, into trouble. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it's just reminding me of another uh, teacher, Rupert Spira. And he asks a very simple question. How do you value peace? And when do you value peace? You know, if not now, when? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, I wanted to know whether you've had uh, people near the end of their, their life this life, that have been uh, quite peaceful and uh, whether you've um, learnt anything from them. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and what, what would that be? Uh, oh well, peaceful. Now, th this, is <laughs> this is where it gets tricky. For example, um, My father died one night. I, I wasn't there. He, he was in Brisbane. I was in Perth. Um, sleeping in the bed with mum, even though they were in their 90s. Um, 
Mum didn't even know it had happened until next morning. And, you know, the, the, everybody says, well, what a, what a wonderful way to go. What a peaceful way to go. And on the surface, it's a very peaceful death. But I don't know what was in my father's mind at the time. And certainly, as all the teachings say, that as you approach death the last day or so, <clears throat> you've got a heightened sense of awareness. And it, when it might seem that you're unconscious or it might seem that you're asleep, actually, you're very aware of everything that's going on. So I can't even assume that, uh, you know, Dad was asleep when it happened. Um, but on the surface, it was a peaceful death. And another friend, I only, only found this out on Monday night, um, she was living in this house with the rest of the family. She had her own room and they'd taken her in some food because she wanted to eat by herself in a room, <clears throat> not, not with them. And they went back to collect the dish and she was dead. She was sitting in a chair, she was completely peaceful looking. Um, and on the surface you'd say, oh, what a nice way to go, you know. Here one moment, gone the next. Peaceful, quiet. But what's going on up here, I, I don't know. And have, have uh, these people that you speak of, have, is there something common in their life, that they, the way they've lived their life, or, or something that you've gathered the way they've lived, that has made that final transition peaceful? Oh, right. I uh, think it is, isn't it? Um, actually, I know somebody who was very resentful because he'd lost his job and he blamed other people. And he couldn't let it go. He just couldn't let it go. And this was going on at length. And I remember being on the same retreat and he started to ask a question about this, about feeling angry. And then I think he changed his mind because he didn't want to ask it in front of other people, so he stopped. But later on, I think it was Ajahn Brahm who was running the retreat, and he said a few words about constantly having negative thought patterns. He said, they get hold of you. It's an, you know, obsessed people can't let something go. This, this particular individual talked about this problem of his a lot. Um, and so Ajahn just said, it's as, it's as well, something like it's as well to be aware of yourself if you're constantly thinking negative thoughts. Because, he said, you never know when you're going to die. It can happen any time. It really can. And if it does, when you're in the middle of a nasty thought about what's his name, then that has a really negative effect on your next life. And there's more than one person that said that. Ajahn Chitamalo talked about that too quite a bit when he used to be here. They say it's very important. I mean, normally, normally average people don't walk around constantly thinking negative thoughts. But this person, wouldn't, you wouldn't say he was a nasty person, he's ordinary, but he was just caught up in resentment and anger about what he thought other people had done. And that's always a really nasty thing because you've got someone to blame. And he was constantly blaming them. And I think what Ajahn Brahm was trying to do at that time was just gently say, be aware of your thoughts. And of course, mindfulness is very much a thing in Buddhism, being mindful of everything you do. So if you can just be mindful if, and catch yourself if you're being very negative about something. Because I think it was, and Ajahn Brahmali said similar things. It's, he said it's like cattle in a, in a cattle yard trying to get out. And then suddenly the gate opens and the nearest one to the gate darts out first. 
It's like that if you suddenly die and your mind is full of something unpleasant. It's that thought that will be the one that's coloring your, your experience in death. Even though all the nice thoughts you've ever had are still there, that's not the one that you're thinking. So we have to be mindful. That's what it is. It's a responsibility to ourselves not to get hooked on something that's um, obsessive and unpleasant. Get hooked on something nice, beautiful, peaceful. Mm. I think there's no harm in continually sending blessings and sharing merit. I have a sneaking suspicion that will only do good. No harm in that. You can be obsessive. Just don't get upset if it doesn't work, that's all. <laughs> so I think that's a lovely message to close on. Let's get hooked on doing something good. So I'd like to offer these small tokens of appreciation. And I'd also like to let people know we have a donations box at the back. Um, tonight we'll be raising funds for Pure Land. And Bill, now there's two things I want to say here. The first one is, Bill is, um, oh, it's completely left me in the name of the book. Oh, The Beauty of Silence. <laughs> the Beauty of Silence. Um, is available for purchase at the back for a minimum of a $20 donation. And before we say our sadhu, sadhu, sadhus, I would also like to spread the merits by saying happy birthday. It's Bill's birthday. He probably doesn't want the whole Dharma Hall to know that. <laughs> So happy birthday, Bill. <laughs> and what would make Bill's day is if someone would step up and volunteer to do the gardening. <laughs> so to finish off, let's pay our respects to the triple gem with a good sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> and those who want to can do the final chance.